people all over this country are wondering whether or not this great country is evolving into an oligarchic society. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that combines military, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. The structure of financial controls created by the tycoons of big banking and big business was of extraordinary complexity. They could influence the economic life of the country to a large degree and could almost control its political life. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No secret is revealed. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today we will continue with our look at the institutional power players of the time period of the Reformation as well as modern day and what they look like, what those systems look like. So we'll talk about lords versus kings versus the church, as well as the comparison with that with the corporations versus the state, as well as a comparison between dynastic marriages and mergers and acquisitions and the class system and hierarchies, these kinds of things. So these systems that are in place both then and now. So just to begin with here, we've got a battle of rights that's really going on in the time period of the Reformation. We have the players of the lords, which would be the local rulers, so to say, versus the kings, which would be the more regional rulers, versus the church, which would be the more universal ruler, roughly, so to say. And all of them are battling for their right to rule and what aspects of rulership that they truly have over the people that they are governing over because they all play a governing role over large groups of people. And so whose realm is what right? How does this play out? You have things like taxes and law and policing, defense, religion, All of these things are decided on all three levels. You have money being paid to the church, to the local lord, and to the king. You have laws and decrees being handed down from the church, from the lord, and from the king. You have armed people involved with conflicts. You have the crusades being led by the church. You have the more standing armies of the kings. You have these armies that are brought up of the lords to battle with other lords and other kings. You have all of these different things being decided at all three levels, and it's kind of this battle of rights between the three. This is kind of the milieu that we are entering into as we look at this time period from an institutional systems perspective. And if we apply the same thing today, you have businesses versus what I will term oligarchical megacorps, so the idea of these international megacorporations, versus the state. And so you have these businesses that deal with more regional, smaller markets, these types of things. You have these megacorps that are international dealing with billions of dollars of trade and commerce. And then you have the state that is in charge of a whole country, depending on the different area. They have different rights to rule over different aspects. But this is the institutional 
framework that we have today. And we have this battle of rights between smaller businesses and small, I use that term very relatively, versus the big megacorps versus the state. They all deal with issues of taxes and payments and regulation and policy and protection of the markets, of the customers, of the businesses themselves, of their employees. A lot of people need protecting. Again, I've mentioned this many times that a lot of things are economic now that used to be physical. So whereas it may have been physical protection we're talking about in the earlier parallel, it's more economic protection that we're talking about in the modern day. You have things like funding and discrimination. All of these different things and more are handled by all three levels. They're handled by the smaller businesses. They're handled by the international megacorps, and they are handled by the state all at the same time in different ways to different degrees. And you have this battle of rights between the three. And that's kind of our institutional groundwork that we have laid here. Now, as you get into the historical parallel, the nobles have land under the king, and they often have land abroad. So they have kind of these mixed loyalties. They have mixed incentives. They have mixed incomes where you have a lord that has a given small geographic territory, at least relatively small, and they have rulership over this area. Well, they might get land in another area as well, but that other land might be under the jurisdiction of a different king. And so you have one lord, but he is subject to two different kings according to two different territories, And you have some complications that come up here. Who is he going to be loyal to if the two kings fight each other? Or even if one king fights another king, but his loyalties to his other king that he is subject to is allies with that same other king that his other king is fighting. If you can follow that, then bless you. But the point is that there are some issues here. And these issues do end up getting resolved in time, but they definitely existed as you saw these battles between the rights of these different groups come into play. You have these mixed loyalties that are throwing a wrench in the system here. And we have the same thing happening today where corporations are largely international. Their customers have varied demands and varied beliefs you have this issue where a corporation might be located or headquartered at least in one country, but then they're doing business in another country as well or many other countries. So they're subject to the law of country one and subject to the law of country two, as well as three and four and five and however far they expand. And depending on where they expand, they might be subject to the laws and regulations of an overall council or group like the United Nations or the European Union or uh, the trade deals that exist between the U.S. and Mexico and Canada, what used to be called NAFTA. You've got all these different conglomerations of connections here where corporations aren't just subject to one country, one state. They are subject to many, and they are incentivized by many. Sometimes they are incentivized to follow the regulations of one country and not the other. Or often they will follow the recommendations of the most severe country and then just apply those to the other because it is more efficient and effective for them to streamline their processes and just follow the same system in both territories, even if they aren't required to in Territory 1, but they are in Territory 2. 
But the point is, you have these differing loyalties. You have these differing incentives from these different players, and that causes some issues. Well, historically, this left the local lords ripe for consolidation. And that's what happened with the kings and the nobility. They combined together, they consolidated together, and it was a lot easier for the nobles if they were under one jurisdiction. That made a lot more sense. That made it a lot easier to figure out how they're going to do things. It made it easier for everybody. Oftentimes, a knight was pledged to one lord, but then also pledged to another lord, and then he had people under him that were pledged to yet another Lord. And again, this gets really complicated and it doesn't work very well sometimes. And it definitely is not streamlined and efficient. Whereas if you have a consolidation and you only have one group at the top and you are only subject to them and their laws and their rules, then that is a lot easier to follow. Well, we see this happening through dynastic marriages at the time period following the Reformation, where a lot of noble lines would cement and consolidate their power through marriage instead of through war. Obviously, you had the 30 Years' War. There was a lot of consolidation done there through physical warfare. But there was this other method that they could use that was quicker and cheaper and more stable than war. And this was marriage, where you would have one noble line marry into the line of another royal family in another country, and all of the sudden, these bloodlines are connected, and these noble families are connected, and you get something like the Habsburgs, where they, in a sense, rule over the majority of Western Europe, just one family, because of all of these marriages and alliances that they have, and they did so partially through war, but also partially apart from war. And that aspect was a lot simpler. And it did provide a way to solidify this consolidation and expand their power and their regional influence without having to go through a very costly war in many different ways. Well, if you look at today's world, there are a lot of mergers and acquisitions that have been going on for the past, I'd say, decade or so, where you have these giant mega corporations that are even consolidating amongst themselves. Look at the Bear Monsanto merger. These were some of the largest companies in their individual industries, and they merged together to form one giant corporation. And this has happened over and over again. You have a lot of corporations that instead of going through competition, which would kind of be more of an analogy to physical warfare, it's this idea of economic warfare, it's competition in the markets. Instead of doing that, which is very costly to fight economically between two different companies, instead of doing this, what they do is they get married. They have a dynastic marriage. This is the merger or the acquisition where they combine together, they consolidate together, and they solidify this consolidation through a voluntary or even slightly forced merger of two companies. And so they become one giant company that has influence over even more territory, even more market share than they had before, sometimes in even different industries than they were exposed to before. And so we see a lot of these things, again, still playing out in these parallels. Well, 
there is this issue that a lot of people are turned off from, this idea of a class system. Uh, Class warfare is something that has definitely been at the top of the list of political issues ever since, especially since Karl Marx and the ideas of communism and socialism. But we see that this existed then, this exists now, and one aspect that is not very flattering to say, but um, is true nonetheless, is that society does expect and in some way demands a class system. At one time, in the historical example that we're talking about, we have this idea of birth and title and marriage and conquering through war, that these things are what position you in a certain class system, that you're, if you are born to a noble family, then you are of the noble class. If you conquer a people in warfare, then you have the right to rule over those people. If you marry into a royal bloodline or a noble bloodline, then you and your offspring become nobility as well, that this is just the way it works. And the commoners of the time expected this. It made sense to them. They had a system and a structure, a hierarchy that they can follow. They didn't like it oftentimes. Oftentimes it was extremely corrupt and oppressive, and it wasn't a good thing, but people did expect this. And in some ways they demanded it. They didn't want anarchy. You know, again, that's this horrible, dreaded word of chaos in the streets, but this is what they were thinking, that we need someone to rule over us, and who's going to do it? Well, of course, it's the people that are best suited to rule, and that would be these noble bloodlines and these noble families that have conquered through war, they have conquered through politics, they have conquered through economics, and they know what they are doing. Us common peasants, we don't know what we're doing. How could we rule over each other? No, we need an actual ruler, and that's kind of the idea. In today's world, maybe you look at some one's education or their job or their job history, their resume, or maybe it's what political office they hold or have held. And these are the people that are in a different class. Again, a lot of things are economic now where they were physical prior. And we see this today where people that have a lot of money, the rich, so to say, are in a different class than the poor. You, you even have this in our modern vocabulary. We have the lower class, the middle class, and the upper class. And that is all economic. It's an economic class system. It does fall in line with Karl Marx, where we have these different classes of people depending on how much money and wealth that they have and have made. Some of this does come from birth. Sometimes you just get a huge inheritance and your family is, let's say, the Clintons. So all of the Clintons' offspring will have this certain amount of clout and influence and wealth just because of who their parents were. They were born into it. Again, it's this idea of dynasties and genetic noble families. And we have a similar thing today. There's this idea of experts today, and these are going to be people with PhDs, people with high levels of education, as well as key positions in corporations and in the state where they have headed up certain universities or certain studies or worked for certain projects or corporations, or maybe they were the head of a government department that handled this one aspect of some scientific research or something. But these are known as the experts, and they are in a class of their own. It's a class issue here. And of course, we wouldn't want us 
commoners to decide, let's say, scientific policy related to a pandemic. No, we want the experts to decide those things. And who are the experts? They're the people in the expert class. It's a special class. It's a class system. Not only do we accept that, we demand it that, well, yes, we need this class of people that can handle these things because we can't do it ourselves. That's the idea, at least. So it's this class system that exists now and it existed then. What happened then? Well, these classes, the upper class, they merged together and consolidated together. And what is happening now, of course, these upper classes are merging and consolidating together. If you look at how the revolving door works between being on the board of directors of a given mega corporation and being involved in a government and working as the head of a certain department, look at the the history of the head of the EPA or the FDA or the CIA in America, at least, and correlate that with the jobs that they had prior, whether that be uh, being the CEO of Monsanto and then running the organization, the department that governs the industry that Monsanto is in, or whether you worked for a big defense contractor and then you helped run the CIA, or however this works out, this does play out. We do have this consolidation, this merging of these different areas in these upper classes, these classes of the rich and the wealthy, the experts from academia and from their educational pedigree, and the upper class politically, these have started to coalesce and started to consolidate. And that is playing out currently. And so we end up with this idea of, oh, well, these are the people that should make the decisions to govern over all of us because they are in that class of people that does that. Well, if you look at the hierarchy that existed in, let's say, the Middle Ages and kind of compare that on down the road to modern times, in the Middle Ages, you had this hierarchy, and I'm going very broad with this, but you roughly had knights that had some power and they had some wealth and they had some land. And then you had the nobles that were over them that had more people, more rights, more land. Then you had the king that was over the entire regional area. And then you had the church that was at the top of the pyramid. And if the church told the king to do something and the king didn't do it, it didn't go very well for that king, even though the church wouldn't necessarily be able to send an army against them. Well, a lot of times they actually could. They would just get the other kings that are loyal to the church to go against him and take out that king and put someone else in his place that would be loyal to the church. Um, different examples like this have existed and do exist in many different ways. But the point is you have this hierarchical system where you had knights on kind of the bottom end. You had the nobles that were above them. You had the kings that were over everybody, but they were still subject to the church in a certain way. The church was, in a sense, a check on the power of the king, and the church was a check on many different kings at the same time. Well, if we look at the example today with the state, you would find that the local government department is kind of at the bottom end of this role. And then you have the federal department that is over the local one that is the next 
hierarchical move up. And then you have the president that is over all of the departments and has control over all of these things. And then you have the constitution that even the president is subject to. And the president can go against the constitution, but that's not going to go over very well. And I don't think I need to explain why. And so you have the constitution as this check on power. And it's not only check on the power of the president is check on the power of Congress and the Senate and all of these different departments. And obviously, I'm talking about the United States, but every government in the Western world generally has a similar hierarchy, even if it's not exactly the same. I'm sure you can get the parallel here. Well, if you look in the corporate world, and the corporate world is the actual direct parallel to the nobility that I talked about in this first set of hierarchies. Well, you have management as the lowest level of this kind of ruling class, so to say. And above management would be the CEO. He is the one or she is the one that runs the entire company. Well, there is someone above the CEO, though. That's the board. And there is a board of directors that actually is in control of the company and the direction of the company and the big decisions. They are the one that broadly are over the whole company. Even though the CEO is technically the head, the board is over even all of that. And often the board members are on other boards and serve on multiple boards of other corporations where they have a say in the power of many different corporations at the same time. And so they have definitely a, a bigger influence on the corporate world. Well, then there is a check on that, and that would be the state and state law. Well, the corporations, all corporations, have to adhere to the local laws of the local governments and any government in any jurisdiction that they are involved in. And so that is kind of their check on power and their check on what they do and how they do business. Well, we can see with each of these examples that as history played out, the role of the final link of this hierarchical chain started to fade away. Not necessarily that it disappeared, but it started to play a much smaller role. And so its role as being a check on the former link becomes very ineffective. So if we look at our first example, the historical one of the knight to the noble to the king with the church as being the check, well, yes, as the Reformation came about, the church had less power. And so if the church is losing power, then that means that there is much less of a check on the power of the previous link, and that would be the king. So the king was very beholden to the church, but now, post-Reformation, let's say, the church still has some influence, but not a whole lot. And even in some cases, the king ended up also being the church, the Church of England, for example. And so this check that the church had as this overarching check on power of this chain of hierarchy within the ruling class, it didn't really have the same role to play. And guess what happened? Well, we have absolute monarchies that come out of this where the king now has all of the power with very little check. And that does definitely make sense. Well, what was one of the answers to that? It was constitutional monarchies and constitutional governments. So if you get a little further in history towards more of a modern time, you had constitutions that would keep the monarchs or the overall rulers, the presidents or whatever they are called in a given country, they are kept in check by the constitution of that given country. 
Well, what happens when the Constitution starts to lose a lot of its weight? If you look at the United States of America, uh, even legally in its own legal system, the Constitution has lost a lot of the power that it once had. It's been interpreted in many different ways that it was not originally intended to be interpreted. Even though the Federalist did want a centralized federal government, they definitely wanted to keep that government in check. At the time, they were the pro-state faction, but their idea of a state was much, much, much smaller than what we have today. They would not even recognize what we have today, and they would say, well, this goes against everything in the document that we wrote. Well, and it does, because that document does not have a whole lot of power today. Guess what happens? Well, now the president has a lot more power than he once did, and there is very little check on him. And look at President Trump, President Obama, President Bush. Look at their use of executive power. It is much, much, much higher than any of the historic presidents could ever get away with because of the check that the Constitution played on the former and the lack of a check that it plays on the current presidents. And so it does still exist. And I would say it hasn't completely broken down the same way that the church more completely broke down, but it is definitely getting there and it is definitely in the later stages. Well, if you look at the corporate example of management, CEO, the board, with a check being the state and the law of the given country they are within their jurisdiction of, what happens if this state or the law starts to lose some of its influence and power? We have been talking about the possibility of a breakup of the state or the fall of the state, or at least a loss of influence and power of the political state. Well, what happens here? That is the check on these corporations, on the board and the CEO and management and the corporation as a whole. Well, if that starts to go away, then there no longer is as much of a check. And guess who has more and more power? Well, it's the board. It's the, in a sense, council that governs the corporation. That would be the board of directors. And they would end up with a lot more power. Corporations would have a lot bigger role to play. And yes, we have played out this parallel many times. So the point is that the church or the constitution or the state, they now have little check on the power of the ruling class and the ruling class then has even more power than they had before with very little check of them. The check that does exist no matter what is revolution or withdrawn support or boycotts or strikes. These are checks that will always exist and these institutions always have to deal with that. They can't abuse their power so much that there will be a revolution because then there will be a revolution and that is a check on their power. So it's not that they have infinite power just because this overarching document or this overarching group no longer has as much influence over them. No, there still is a check on their power. There's natural checks on power, but it is definitely not the same and their power definitely does increase a lot. The one hierarchy that I kind of left out and I'll just touch on very briefly here is that of the church. So with the church, you've got the priest who is the local kind of lowest level of that um, upper class, elite class that is the more ruling class that's in control. And then above the priest would be the bishop and above the bishop would be the pope who is over everybody. But that pope is still subject to the Bible and that is the check on the pope's power. And so I guess it with Catholicism, if you go with um, 
the Roman Catholic Church, the idea is that it's not just the Pope. You also have tradition, and um, there are other checks on his power. But you can even look at the Protestant Church today, and even denominations that don't have quite the same hierarchy as the Catholic Church does, there still is a sort of hierarchy, whether it's in each individual church or each denomination or each region or whatever the case may be, there still is this hierarchy with the Bible being the ultimate check on the ruling class, so to say, in that institution. And since we're using the church in the historical sense, then we will talk about the priests, the bishops, the pope, uh, with the check being the Bible at the time. And that check really came into play when you had Martin Luther come around in the Reformation time period, like we're talking about. And so sometimes that check does work fairly well. But the problem is that it hadn't been working well. And with all of these, these checks just weren't really working well. When when the Bible is not actually followed the way that it teaches, and so if the Bible teaches one thing, but the Pope says something totally different and lives a totally different way, and the church is full of corruption, then obviously the Bible is not playing a very large check on that institution. The same is true of the Constitution today. The Constitution theoretically holds constitutional governments in check. But in reality, and I've talked about this a lot with the United States government, the Constitution doesn't really do its job the way it was originally intended. And so when you don't go with what the Constitution was intended to do in that role of being a check on power, then there really isn't a very good check. And the same is true with these other things in the other examples where the check on power isn't really playing the role that it should be playing. And the problem is that this check does still exist, so it is distorting the market, so to say, the institution. And so, for example, when you have the nobility, you have the knights, the nobles, the king, and then the church is that check on power. Well, if the church were just gone and totally disappeared, then you would have the knight, the nobles, and the king, and there would probably be another check on power that would have taken the place of the church, like a constitution, which did end up happening over time. Um, Or you might have the nobility have more power and create a council of sorts, or you might have the people on a local level have more say in governance in their local region, or who knows how that would play out, but there will always be this check. Or there will just be even more power with the ultimate check of revolution and revolt. Whereas if the king has nothing to fall back on, then the people are a lot more likely to rise up against them or to see the tyranny for what it is. Whereas if the king can just say, oh, well, I'm following what the Bible says. The Bible says, submit to the authorities and God set up my kingship and I have a divine right to rule over you, therefore submit. And people will do it. Oftentimes, historically, that has worked very well. And the problem comes in when if you did have the church completely go away and say there was no church, there was no Bible that the king could fall back on and say, oh, well, technically what I'm doing is right, and this is why you should submit to me. If he didn't have that to fall back on, then he would really have to be very convincing. He'd have to really step up the propaganda and also keep his actions in check and make sure they weren't too tyrannical because he wouldn't have a good excuse for doing so. And If the church still does exist, but not as much as it did before, like the true historical example where the church still was 
kind of an ultimate authority in the sense that it still had influence over broadly Western Europe, at least most of it. And there was this role that the Bible was still playing as a check on all the denominations that split up from the Universal Catholic Church as well, um, as well as the kings often had to refer to the Bible, such as the Church of England. They totally broke away from the Catholic Church, but they were still subject to the Bible, so the kings still had that an institutional church, and it was just a different institution, but the institutional church still did play that role of being a check on the king's power. And so the way it worked out, though, is that the institutional church no longer had that ultimate say. They no no longer defined ultimate reality for society of that time period. So instead of the pope being able to say, this is right, this is wrong, this is how you live, this is how you rule, this is how you work, whatever the case may be, the pope couldn't do that anymore because they didn't really, he didn't really have that much power after the Reformation. And a lot of areas didn't even listen to the pope at all. Um, some thought that he was the anti pope, and others just denied his role entirely. The Anabaptists, for example, at the Church of England, or the Lutherans, or the Calvinists, whoever it may be, all these denominations, they no longer listened to the pope. And so the pope the institutional church, the Catholic church, used to be this huge influence, whereas now it still was somewhat of an influence, but that influence kind of devolved into just a vague influence of religion on society and influence of the Bible in a much more vague way on society to where, again, that still played a role. The king still had to say he was a Christian if he really wanted his subjects to look up to them. And they used that idea of divine rule to cement their rulership over their people. It's just that the institutional church didn't have the same role. So whereas on one hand, if the church had a large role to play like it originally did, it could actually be a very good check on the power of the king and of the rulers of an area. And if the church is completely gone, then the king would have that responsibility himself and would have to either find a check or the people would find a check, or he would have to be a check on himself because the people aren't going to stand for much if he has no excuses for what he's doing. And so either way, the power is checked more. But if you have something in the middle where the church still exists, but it doesn't really have a whole lot of influence, and it's kind of this vague thing that the king will give lip service to, but doesn't really have a whole lot of impact, then it just ends up getting used as a tool for dominion. And that doesn't work out very well. The same is true with all these other examples, like the Constitution in today's world with the state. Technically, if the Constitution was strong, like it originally was, then that is a very good check on the power of the government. That was the whole role of the Constitution, was to be a check on the power of the government, not to have anything to do necessarily directly with the people, more as a check on the government itself. And that worked well. If there was no constitution, look at colonial America, you had the individual regions often, the individual colonies did set up their own constitutions. And so you had that. You also had the issue of something like the Articles of Confederation, where there wasn't necessarily a constitution, but there were these checks where all these all these colonies had to work together. They were allied together. 
Um, but there was no enforcement. There was no universal law. There was no federal government. And so there was this just inherent check on things. You couldn't have one colony just dominate over everybody else or use the rule of law to their advantage because it just wasn't really there. You just had the Articles of Confederation more like um, an alliance among the colonies. And so uh, this more decentralized approach definitely was a check on ultimate power. There was no way that a tyrant would come up and rule over all the colonies together. That just wasn't going to happen in that situation. And there are plenty of other issues that came up, given that the Articles of Confederation didn't have a whole lot of power. And I've talked about that in a previous episode about the Constitution, founding fathers and stuff. I won't get into that. But the point is, just from this perspective as a check on power, having no constitution was a good check in keeping a tyrant from coming to power. And having a strong constitution was a really good check. But what we have today, is the situation where there still is a constitution, but it has very weak influence on the state. And so it should be a check, but it's not really. But it's not a small enough amount of influence to not really have any impact at all. It's basically just enough to give the state an excuse to say that, well, according to our interpretation of the Constitution, we can do X, Y, and Z. And it justifies a lot of the wrong things, in my opinion, at least, and many others, that they do. They justify it by saying it's for the uh, general welfare or common defense or it's part of interstate commerce, even though, you know, it has nothing to do with commerce or leaving the state. That happens frequently and that doesn't really work very well. So we have these issues where the system is set up and the hierarchy is set up in such a way that when it functions on one extreme or the other or if that check is definitely there, definitely not, then it works fairly well. But when that check is there enough for the hierarchy to use, but not strong enough to be any real check against the hierarchy, then it actually makes the situation even worse. And that's the problem that we have right now. If you look back to the historical example where the church and religion was this check on power back when religion had a lot more real political pull and sway, well, religion ended up as the Reformation happened and it lost a lot of its influence and it was in this kind of vague state the way the Constitution is today, religion ended up being used as an excuse for laws, as an excuse for punishments and for war. And in reality, religion ended up being a tool that solidified submission and legitimacy. And that would be submission of those being ruled and legitimacy of the ruling class, those who were the rulers. And it did both because it was used, as I've mentioned before, as this and it, this excuse and this reason why those that were being ruled should obey and should be ruled and why this is the way that it really should be because the Bible says so, God says so, and regardless of whether the Bible actually says that or not, the people believed it and the rulers used it and it worked. It solidified that submission in the ruled and it solidified the legitimacy of the ruler at the same time because they could use that divine right of king strategy and it worked very well and very effectively. But the Bible and the church, the way that it should have been operating, according to the Bible, it did not actually fill the role of being a real check like it would have been if it actually had the strength and the purity of following what it really was intended to be. And so that's the issue there. And if you look at the modern parallel, the state 
plays the role of the church historically and the corporate world, corporations, mega corporations, they would be the ones that fill the role of the nobility. Now, obviously, the stage we are at in the development of this hierarchical system is a little different than this direct parallel to the Reformation, but these roles still play out, and I have explained that very thoroughly over and over again, so I won't do that again. But uh, the point is here that the state should be the check on corporations and on corporate power and corporate influence and what they can do. But in reality, the state is used to create laws, to create regulations, to create penalties for company competition and for industry competition. The state is used as an excuse for never-ending war that always comes up. And guess who always benefits from this war? Whether it's the sugar plantations from Spanish-American war time period, or whether it is the drug trade from the wars in Asia and Vietnam, and then again in the wars in the Middle East, there is this issue where the state is the reason why war exists. It's the reason why the laws exist. It's the reason and the legitimacy behind the regulations, the penalties, the subsidies. But who is actually benefiting? It is the corporations benefiting from all of this, whether it be defense contractors or big tech companies or the agricultural industry or really big one today, big pharma has huge benefits. And so you have this situation where the state should be the check on the corporate world, but in reality, it's not a strong enough check to really matter, but the state still exists and has enough influence and a lot of influence still. The state hasn't gone through this uh, devolution that the church did during the Reformation yet. I would propose that it probably will happen soon, but um, it doesn't have the power to be a real check, but it also isn't gone. It definitely still exists. And so instead, you have this unholy mixture like you did with the church and the nobility in historic times. We have this unholy mixture between the state and corporations today where there really is not much of a difference. There's, It's so incestuous that they exist together and their goals and the things that they want to accomplish and how they accomplish them and who benefits, all of this is intertwined because the CEO of one company is going to be working in the State Department a few years from now and vice versa. And it's just this crazy mix where corporations are the ones who are financing the campaigns for the politicians and paying them off legally somehow. And it's just... I don't have to explain this to you. If you're listening to this, you know that this exists and this is a major problem. But what ends up happening is the same as religion during the roughly Reformation time period. So in today's world, it's the state, it's politics, and that is what is used as a tool to solidify submission and to create legitimacy. So it's submission of those of us in the market. We are customers and consumers. Now, a lot of that is driven by consumerism and propaganda, marketing, whatever you want to call it. But a lot of that is also just things we need. We need to eat. We need food. We need shelter. We need all of these types of things. And the system has been set up in such a way that we have to get those things from certain companies, or we have to use certain materials, or subsidies exist in such a way that if we don't want anything that's corn-based or has corn syrup in it, it's really hard to find, and it gets a lot more expensive because corn is so heavily subsidized in the United States that it makes it so much cheaper than anything else because the government just 
pays them to grow it, whether they make any money or not at the time. And that creates a lot of distortions. It's a problem. And so it ends up solidifying submission because we technically have a choice, but many people, if you give them the same drink that either is laden with corn syrup and has all kinds of cool commercials you see all the time, or this no-name brand that's organic and twice the price, but it's roughly the same product, at least from a consumer's perspective. You know, They're both apple juice, so to say, and whether one has apples in it or not, probably not. And the other one is probably nothing but apples, but still, it's twice the price and it doesn't have that propaganda behind it. And so therefore, the consumer ends up going to the cheaper option probably 90% of the time for the masses at least. There are those of us that choose to spend more money and we do more research and we are more careful with what we buy and what we consume and that's a good thing. But for the broad spectrum of the masses, that's usually not the way people process things. And sometimes they don't have much of a choice. If you don't have a lot of money, then you have to go with the cheaper option if you're going to get stuff for your family. And that's just the way it is. Well, unfortunately, due to the corruption of the state influence, due to that distortion in the market, the cheap option is the crappy option from the mega corporation. Whereas if they weren't receiving these subsidies and government money and regulations that keep out their Competition and all these ways that the corporations use the state to their advantage, then they wouldn't necessarily be the cheapest option or they wouldn't be the cheapest option by the same margin that they are today. And so it ends up, again, solidifying submission. And that's uh, it might be a little bit of an extreme way of wording that, but just to make the parallel there, I'm using the same words here. And then to solidify the legitimacy of the corporations, you have the state backing them up. You have the FDA that is saying, yes, this product is safe for you to consume. It is perfectly safe for you. It's got the government stamp of approval right on it. And there you go. The state has solidified the legitimacy of the product of this corporation. And And that's kind of just the way it works, who ends up being solidified as a legitimate weapons manufacturer. Well, it's the one that gets the government contracts. If you are just a no-name company and you locally just want to start building rockets, that might not go too well unless you have the legitimacy of the state behind you. You probably have to get a lot of permission from the state and make a lot of connections to get those permissions and pay a lot of money, pay a lot of fees and get a license to do whatever it is you're doing. And there's this whole big process. And through that process, you end up getting state legitimacy and they end up solidifying your legitimacy as a weapons manufacturer. And there you go. It's all because of the state. So like usual, it's just really interesting interesting how these parallels really do look so familiar the way they play out and the way they played out the way they are playing out and how all that is going it's just really interesting so i'm gonna stop this episode here we'll pick up next time with another aspect of these parallels looking at the state the church and historical parallels to modern times things going on today with these shifts in power and institutions and hopefully it will continue to be very interesting Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate my listeners. I really appreciate people who are getting in contact with me. I did get an email from someone that I actually did an interview with. And so that was really nice to see them reaching back out. And I will post that on the Patreon page whenever I actually get that. 
I know I have not posted the other interviews. Um, I was planning on posting all of them and never really got around to it. So I had given you your bonus ones a while ago and I still have a backlog of, I don't know, two or three that I haven't done yet, plus this new one. So I'll get those out there to the Patreon people. And there's also a place on the website where if you hunt for it on the drop down menu, you can find the appearances that I've made on other podcasts. So if you're interested, you can just manually find that yourself. It's not exclusive to patrons. But the other person I did want to call out is Libertarian Brewer on Twitter. He has definitely been throwing around a lot of tweets and tagging me in them and said very nice things about the podcast and apparently is really enjoying it. So thank you very much, Libertarian Brewer. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the shout outs and the recommendations and all the kind things you've been saying. So thank you very much. If anybody else has any comments, questions, concerns, anything else, please feel free to email me or send me a message or a tweet on Twitter. And that would be at FoundationsPC for Twitter and ourfoundations at protonmail.com for the email address. And all that is in the show notes. So you can check it out. Check out the Patreon page if you haven't done so. And just again, thank you to all of you. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.